The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us, danproftshow.com, podcasts, uh, source material for the show, and all kinds of other good stuff. Uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show. Back to last night's debate. I thought it was interesting the way that Kamala Harris uh, characterized uh, the reason that she was selected by Joe Biden to be his running mate. Take a listen. You know, I have a career that included being elected the first woman district attorney. I was elected um, the first uh, woman of color and black woman to be elected attorney general of the state of California, where I ran the second largest Department of Justice in the United States. Isn't it interesting? I mean, yes, she's had uh, important jobs in the legal space, but she has to uh, preface her professional accomplishments by identifying her gender and then her gender and race. Why? For more on that topic of identity politics and the lies that lie at the heart of identity politics, which is a op-ed he has recently penned, we're pleased to be joined by Philip Carl Salzman. He's a professor emeritus of anthropology from McGill University up there in Canada, senior fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy and fellow at the Middle East Forum as well. Professor Salzman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Delighted to be here. Were you uh, struck by... Um, Kamala Harris's need to tell everybody that she was a black woman when she was a prosecutor, she was a black woman when she was the Attorney General of California? That's par for the case these days. It's very common for people to invoke census categories of race, gender, sexuality, even religion and ethnicity to somehow claim some kind of extra value. And the uh, the extra value, uh, ostensibly, at least if, as I, if I understand Ibram Kendi, a.k.a. Henry Rogers' uh, categorizations properly, the extra value is I am somebody who is oppressed, who survived my oppression at the hands of the white male patriarchy, so that, that is actually a special accomplishment and qualification. Exactly. The All of these identity politics invocations are put into a framework of oppressor oppressed and everybody's claiming to be a victim of somebody else and therefore worthy of sympathy and also reparations, special benefits and special consideration. I wonder if you can give us a, some perspective on the genesis of all this because I think there's a lot of people over the last couple of years who've woken up to this, not in the woke sense, meaning they have been awakened to this reality. Uh, they're not with the woke walkers on the left and they don't understand how it uh, migrated from college campuses to their companies and their kids' schools. They don't know what to do about it, and they don't know where this leads, uh, addressing that, you know, sort of the past and what the future may portend. The feminists in the 1960s and 70s borrowed the Marxist class struggle, alleged struggle between the bourgeois and the proletariat, the well-to-do and the workers. Now, the Marxists were never really able to sell that one in North America because most North Americans see themselves and indeed are middle class. Uh, so they don't really accept that. But that class struggle model was one that was adopted by feminists who claimed that the male patriarchy was oppressing all females 
in the society and that there was a gender class conflict and that therefore there needed to be a, in a sense, a, a gender revolution. There was a focus on grievances, on grievances by females, some of which, uh, as time went on, became really invented and not really corresponding very well to reality. What initially was claimed to be a program to increase gender equality became one in which feminists uh, vilified males and demanded to replace them. For example, males became, and masculinity became characterized by females as toxic or poisonous. And um, you've probably seen the the t-shirts that are popular among young feminists, the future is female. So it becomes very clear this class conflict wants to be one in which the classes are flipped and the females become dominant and males, because they're not worthy, are are at the bottom. Unless they're feminized. This was a conversation we had in part with Heather McDonald earlier in the show, and she talked about the feminization of all aspects of culture. And, and so if you fold in with this identitarianism, then perhaps you can survive even if you have the wrong physical characteristics, you know, being male, being white. And this is, well, this is the feminization of the culture. That's what some people hope, although feeding your family to the crocodile in the hopes that, that mm-hmm. he'll eat you last has never been a very good strategy in the end. This class conflict model was picked up, of course, by, by the gay rights movement that claimed oppression at the hands of heterosexuals and demanded uh, equal rights and also recognition of their special high qualities. More important, the, it was picked up by race activists and we got the race class conflict in which all African Americans and people of color were are oppressed by whites who are, whether they think so or not, racist. And indeed the whole society allegedly is systemically racist, an idea um, advanced by sociologists and race activists without much in the way of empirical evidence. In fact, the evidence tends to go against that. Evidence of of race relations in North America have been relentlessly improving over over the decades. So you have large numbers of, for example, of mixed marriages. You had people, uh, whites voting for black politicians, uh, electing a black president, uh, saying, if you ask them, basically that um, they don't see any boundaries that they want to maintain between people of different races. Yeah, but uh, that 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 doesn't matter to the uh, the intellectual uh, the intellectuals behind this identitarian movement and so many of the unhinged activists, and that's using that term politely, uh, euphemistically almost. And and you know, it's a, it's always a committed uh, minority that uh, moves the needle one direction or the other. So I wonder where you think this ends, because culturally, even though they may be small in numbers that adhere to this, uh, you know, racism is hardwired into the DNA of the country and, and white people, and all you can do for the rest of your life is apologize for being born white. Even though that may not be a majority opinion, that is where those in charge of our cultural and civic institutions are, and I, I wonder if you think this ends in, uh, you know, some sort of gulagocracy. 
Well, it's as they say, it's a little hard uh, to predict, especially about the future. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but what I can tell you is that the evidence, if you actually want to look at evidence, doesn't support these any of these claims. It doesn't support the claims of the feminists. It doesn't support the claims of race activists. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. One of the big talking points uh, among feminists, especially in universities, is that we have a rape culture. And the whole idea of a rape culture is that every female is threatened by, uh, by every male and can be raped at any moment. Uh, well, if you, in fact, look at the statistics, uh, rape is, is quite rare. And, um, and it's even rarer on campus than it is, than it is in, the general, in the general society. Furthermore, uh, the idea that, that we have a rape culture um, it, it violates any idea of what culture actually is. A culture is what children are taught, uh, what we reward them for doing, um, uh, how we guide how we guide people, in other words, the, the established uh, values, beliefs, and norms. Uh, and of course, uh, we do not teach children to rape. We do not encourage them to rape. We do not teach them how to rape, and we don't reward them if they rape. Um, we discourage them, and we discourage such behavior. Um, as a father, of course, I, I was very clear with my son uh, about how he should treat women, uh, which of course is, is with respect. Uh, and uh, so uh, mm. this, this idea of a rape culture, if you start to look at it, it's a, it's a good slogan, but it's totally unfactual. He is Philip Carl Salzman, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at McGill University, Senior Fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy and Fellow at the Middle Eastern at the, excuse me, Middle East Forum. Professor Salzman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.